Hello, and welcome to the Wakotoan Podcast. My name is Justin Moore. This is an initiative in collaboration with the Need of Studies 345 class of the winter of 2018. This four-episode podcast is discussing Wakotoan. Wakotoan is a Cree word that means kinship, relationships, and family, but can be expanded to mean the whole of creation and our responsibilities and reciprocal obligations to one another and the entire world around us. The episodes will be discussing Wakotwin in ways that each team has uniquely connected to. Please enjoy listening. Oki, Nistua Nitaniku, Leroy Wolfcaller. Nimhtu Tu, Siksika, I am from Siksika. You are listening to the Wakotuin Podcast. Today's episode is called The Complexities of Indigenous Identity. Good afternoon. My name is Dega Scott and I'm here with Molly Swain. Can you just introduce yourself and what you've been up to or what what you do at school here? Yeah. Uh, so my name is Molly Swain. I am a Métis woman uh, from Otusquanek or uh, Calgary in Treaty 7 Territory. Uh, I'm currently at the U of A doing my master's degree in Native Studies here. Uh, I'm also a teaching assistant and a research assistant and the host of Metis in Space, an Indigenous feminist science fiction podcast. Can you just explain the difference uh, or the idea around how the government administers Aboriginal identity? Mm -hmm. So it's... Again, it's like very dense and convoluted and it changes sort of depending on what level of government you're talking about, what time period, and sometimes even where you are. Uh, so the three main categories of Aboriginal, which is the federal, the government term that's used to describe Indigenous peoples from this land, uh, there are three categories of Aboriginal, Métis, First Nations, or Indian, is kind of the more official term, and Inuit. So... There's one main piece of legislation that's sort of the most well-known, and of course that's the Indian Act. It's been around for the longest, uh, but it deals only with status Indians. So if you don't have status, the Indian Act doesn't apply to you. This is a really common misconception. A lot of people think that the Indian Act also applies to, to Inuit and Métis people, which is not the case except if you know there are Métis people who have decided to apply for status. Vice versa, there are many status Indian people who have at times been Métis if they've decided to take scrip, for example. There's a lot of family history of this sort of like back and forth administrative switching, which is a really good sort of anecdote to underscore the fact that the way that the government administrates Indigenous people isn't how we understand ourselves. It's, it's strictly an administrative and bureaucratic category that allows them to determine what sorts of services or non-services, land or lack of land, etc., they are going to deign to provide us. There's no sort of like objective external definition of what makes a status Indian. Similarly with the Inuit, there really wasn't a definition up until relatively recently, and Inuit are very much defined as beneficiaries of certain land claims agreements. Nothing about who you're related to, what your relationship to the land is. It's about sort of like bureaucratic management. When it comes to the Métis, the government has actually been really resistant or hesitant to define Métis at all. There have been various people who have tried to push the agenda that, like, we're all Métis. We're all mixed culturally. We're all mixed racially, which means, you know, 
everybody's Métis. Canada is a Métis nation is one of the things that has been said. You know, which you know makes absolutely no sense. That's not how we understand ourselves at all. Because of this sort of definition that gets promoted of mixedness as kind of like our primary characteristic, it makes it very, very difficult um, for the government to then try to administrate us to grant us rights and title. That's intense. <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous, honestly. Would you be able to explain, I guess, like status versus non-status and either the Indian Act and treaty rights, like the differences between them? Being Métis, um, I'm, I have really no experience in that. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's status, there's non-status, uh, there's band membership. You can have status but not have band membership. You can have band membership but not status. Yeah. Your, your parents could have, you know, been in, like, so-called enfranchised, which means, like, you lose your Indian status and are enfranchised into Canadian citizenship for various things. And then maybe you go back or maybe you don't. Being a Métis person, how would you identify your differences? From an administrative standpoint, there are quite a few differences. As I mentioned before, there are there are Métis who have status um, and, and status Indians who um, have taken script and technically then become Métis. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things actually change and they continue to change. Like the Métis Nation of Alberta, the Métis Nation of Saskatchewan, the Métis National Council, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're not the same types of governance organizations as, say, band councils or the AFN. The Métis Nation of Alberta, which I'm most familiar with as a member, uh, is actually a nonprofit organization that was initially developed in the 1930s as a sort of grassroots initiative to gain representation specifically with the provincial government, not with the federal government. One of the things that we're seeing with both the residential school settlement and now with the 60 Scoop settlement is the Métis are being very strategically and deliberately uh, excluded from those processes. It depends on where you go, but often the differences are you know, nominal at best, right? We understand ourselves as different peoples, but, you know, we, we intermarry with one another. We're, we're all families. Uh, we're building these, like, vast political interrelational networks with one another for, you know, 50, 75, 100 years. And then the government comes along and tells us that, no, no, you're First Nations, you're Indians, you're the specific kind of people. We're going to give you all of this stuff, and we're going to take all of this other stuff away. And you're Métis, you're this different kind of people, and we're going to allow you access to all of this stuff as Canadian citizens, but also we're going to take all of this other stuff away. People often think of um, 1870 and 1885 as sort of Métis rebellions or Métis resistances, but you know there were tons of First Nations people involved in there. We're not these cut-and-dried separate polities or separate ethnicities that the government keeps telling us that we are. We're very much parts of the same familial political networks. It's hard to talk about it without referencing history, without referencing legislation, Mm -hmm. without referencing, like, contemporary court battles and, like, political, like, battles of will. It's it's freaking ridiculous. Like, the, the original Métis Nation of Alberta was called the Métis Association of Alberta, and it included... Not just the people that today we would consider Métis, but they were very explicit about including non-status Indians as well, because our livelihoods at that time were so similar. I think essentially the most important thing to understand is firstly that how the government defines us isn't how we define ourselves. And I think the second thing is to recognize that these identity categories, while it's important to take pride in them where we can and to you know, strategically utilize them how we can, they exist as part of a larger colonial effort to eradicate us, and they always will. They're never going to do the work that we ultimately want them to. Thanks again to Molly for giving us a background on legislation and terms such as Aboriginal, Métis, Inuit, and Indian to transition into our personal stories 
relating to Aboriginal identity and status. Uh, my name's Abby Benning. I'm from Edmonton area and I'm non-Indigenous. So when I first heard our episode team talking about 6162 topic, I personally had no background as to what it was in, or in the context it was used. To be completely honest, I thought they were talking about height and I was thinking to myself, wow, your parents are really tall. When I got to ask questions about it, I realized that I am one of many who don't know what this means in terms of status. I realized how complex it is in terms of different rights you are granted within each status and sometimes even figuring out what status you are. Having this conversation explain status amongst our groups helped me understand what each means and the different formulas for status types. I think this is another part of the process that is just as important to create understanding, just being willing to explain and listen to each other. Sometimes I would get nervous that I would offend someone with the questions or terms I was using, but having a discussion and understanding of the final outcome helps to create a common ground between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal groups and establishing a relationship in the process to be open to correcting mistakes. Hi, my name is Alexandria Catholic. I'm from the Northwest Territories, more specifically Lutzake, also known as Snowdrift. I identify as Aboriginal, but I also identify as Dene and Chippewan. While attending courses here at the U of A for my program, me and many other students were taught the math behind being status, the whole 6162 issue. So if you are 6'1", you have complete status, access to your treaty benefits, and the ability to pass status onto your child regardless of who the other parent is. However, if you are a 6'2", you still have status and access to your treaty rights, but whether your child will have status depends on who the other parent is. So if you have a 6'1 parent and a 6'1 parent, you get a 6'1 child. If you have a 6'1 parent and a non-status parent, you get a 6'2 child. However, if you have a 6-1 parent and a 6-2 parent, you get a 6-1 child somehow. You can have a 6-1 child if you have a 6-2 parent and a 6-2 parent, which is also weird. The problem is when you have a 6-2 parent and a non-status parent, the child will end up not getting any status. One day I was having a conversation with my mom. I no longer remember what we were originally talking about but somehow the topic of status, the whole 6162 issue, came up. I explained how they taught us the whole 61 and 62 math and how it works. However, she did not agree and said that's wrong. I replied, but that's what I was taught. She then replied that my instructions were probably wrong or misunderstood. To prove her point, she told me about one of my cousins who was a 62 and whose partner was also a 62, but that their ch children did not have status. I said that doesn't make sense and I brought up how Bill C-31 came out and the concept behind status change creating the whole 6162 issue. She said that it probably only applies for those involved in Bill C-31 because she had to deal with the whole status thing when me and my sisters were born so she should know. I said fine I don't want to fight about it but I will look into it which is how the topic of 6-1 and 6-2 vers status versus non-status thing came to be and why I wanted to look at Aboriginal identity, all to prove her wrong. 
But what I found was that even if you do have that status, it doesn't necessarily define who you are. You can still be Aboriginal, and there are people who self-identify as Aboriginal but don't have status. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're Métis or white either. It just helps to have those bonus rights as a status Indian. Like I said, it doesn't define who you are. And the government tries to define us as Aboriginal, Indian, Inuit, Métis, what tribe you're from. And it's not right, because in the past, people would intermarry, resulting in some people having different Aboriginal parents. So someone could have parents who are Chippewan and Cree, and it's up to that person to define who they are. They could say, I'm Chippewan, or they can say, I'm Cree, or they can say, I'm Aboriginal, or I'm Indian. It all boils down to how you define yourself, not how anyone else defines you. My name is Brandon Sunshine. The formula used by the federal government to determine who is a status Indian and who is not, I believe, has been designed with the intention of removing Indian status and to deny some Aboriginal peoples of the same rights as others. Removing Indian status would extinguish Indian rights and titles that have been a burden to the Crown, which is the federal government, and would allow it to dissolve its financial obligations to Aboriginal people entirely because they would then legally no longer exist. I myself am a 6'2 status Indian, my mother being a 6'1 and my father a non-status Indian. Although I am legally an Indian and do have the rights and titles of being one, I am not culturally connected to my people. I was raised in a non-Aboriginal environment with very little exposure to Anishinaabe culture and as a result have lost an important piece of my identity. I look Aboriginal, I enjoy the rights of one, but that's it. I do not share any of the important cultural elements that make me different from a non-Aboriginal Canadian. The reason why I was raised in a non-Aboriginal environment is because my mother had believed that raising me in a major city would bring me more opportunities than living on a secluded reserve. The Canadian society has been designed to make the settler communities flourish and to deny that to Aboriginal communities and their people. Aboriginal communities are are often in a state of poverty and can be compared to living in a third world country. But in Canada, a first world country, it makes sense that parents would want to move into a city with much greater opportunities to provide for their families and live a happy life. Living in Edmonton, there is a low Aboriginal population. Often, I was the only Aboriginal student in my classes and sometimes in the school. I did not have any exposure to Aboriginal culture, and my parents normally focused on working and did not spend much time socializing with other Aboriginal people. So I did not have the opportunity to learn my ancestors' culture. My parents also did not know much about our culture because they spent most of their childhoods in foster care and a short time in a residential school. I can still learn the culture of my ancestors, practice it, and make it my culture. But my future children will not be status Indians because their mother is not a 6'1 or 6'2. They can practice their Aboriginal culture and will look Aboriginal, but will not qualify for Aboriginal rights and titles because my father's family has been enfranchised. This is why I believe the 6'1, 6'2 formula has been designed to keep Aboriginal people divided and in time to get rid of the Aboriginal rights and title. Hello, 
My name is Dega Scott. The reason why I wanted to work on this topic is because of who I am and how my children recognize their own Aboriginal identity. I grew up in small Aboriginal communities in the north. I am half white and half clean Chodene. I always knew who I was as an Indigenous person. As my mother made sure we knew our culture and traditions, although because of the effects of residential school, my mother never taught us our language. I grew up being proud of who I was. I never looked as Aboriginal as my sister, my cousins, or my friends. People that did not know me would always question if I was Aboriginal. Now I worry about my children and their rights as an Aboriginal person. I am a status Indian, as per the Canadian government. My mother, like many, lost her status because she married my father. Now my children can gain status due to Bill C-31, although it is a long, complicated process. My son is a quarter clean Joe, half black and half white. He has blonde curly hair and blue eyes. He is as pale as can be, but he knows his Aboriginal side more than anything else. He excels in the Clinto language. He can hunt and fish and remember specific details of what is required when he goes out on the land. He can drum and is learning to sing the songs of our ancestors. He is proud of that side of him. My son has always struggled in academia. He has a very hard time understanding English and math, although he can remember and understand our traditional way of life. I used to worry so much about my son because of his struggles in school. That is until I realized that he excels in our culture. He may not look like the stereotypical Aboriginal boy, although I know where his heart is and where he belongs. I will never take that away from my child, and nor will I let anyone else take that away from him. My daughter is clean Cho, Chippewan, Métis, and white. She's dark-skinned with brown hair and brown eyes. Although for a toddler in preschool with many different nationalities in her class, she will tell you that she is white compared to other kids. She loves her culture, and she loves the beat of the drum, traditional songs, and the taste of wild meat. From the moment she was born, she would go crazy over dry meat and cook caribou or moose. I would take her to drum dances, and she could dance all night. I remember when she was about a year old, and we went to a hand games tournament. We were sitting close to the players and the drummers. People were worried the sound and the beat of the drum was too loud for her. Instead, she fell asleep, and it never bothered her. I do worry about living in the city so far away from my home that my children are missing out on many opportunities to be around their culture. I will always do my best to teach my children their culture and traditions. Being an Aboriginal person does not matter if you grew up with your culture and traditions. It is not based on how you look and if you can speak your language. It is what is close to your heart and being respectful to your surroundings. Through our personal stories, identifying status within Aboriginal culture as well as non-Aboriginal culture helps to explain just how complex it is and how it has come to affect everyone in our group, whether it be learning about fellow classmates or on a personal level. Wakoto and his book Connectedness, and these personal stories show everyone's relatedness among one another.
This episode would like to acknowledge the following people. Introduction by Leroy Wolfcaller, Molly Swain. If you like Molly's interview, please check out her podcast called Métis in Space. Episode creators Dega Scott, Abby Benning, Alex Catholic, and Brandon Sunshine with support from Robin House. Theme song by Big Bear Drum Group mixed by Louis Boucher. Please join us on our next episode called Wakotuan in Urban Spaces, Urban Native, Concrete Indian. Thank you for listening to the Wakotuan Podcast. Thank you.